Hello and welcome to the World Nuclear News Podcast. I'm Alex Hunt and coming up in this edition we're joined by John Gorman, President of the Canadian Nuclear Association, who says that although Canada excluded nuclear from its green bonds scheme last year, the tide is turning. It is clear that the world is moving toward recognizing and including nuclear in green financing taxonomies. And of course, uh, you know this better than I do, Alex, but the European Union is on the forefront of uh, taxonomy that is including nuclear, and I'm sure that will carry over to some of the green bond frameworks that people have in place. And we're also joined by World Nuclear Association's Francois Morin, who provides a guide to the nuclear energy industry in China and sets out the astonishing expansion the country has planned for the coming years. But before all that, we start with a review of the big stories from the month of May, and there's no one better to do that than World Nuclear News' own Warwick Pipe and Claire Maiden. Hi, guys. Hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. Once again, Ukraine has been at the forefront of thoughts over the past month. What's the situation now, Warwick? Well, in Chernobyl, the situation has improved greatly since the uh, the Russians moved out of it, the area. The IEA made a mission earlier this month and um, conditions have improved since then. And they've now got remote monitoring available to them on the uh, radiation situation there. Um, the focus now has turned to the Zaporizhzhia plant, which is still under Russian control. Here's Rafael Mariano Grossi, the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, speaking about the situation at the World Economic Forum, making clear some of the concerns about the nuclear material that's contained in the plant's fuel inventory. We are trying to go back to uh, your nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, which is the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe. Six nuclear reactors, 30,000 kilograms of plutonium, 40,000 kilograms of enriched uranium, and my inspectors do not have access to that. It's a very um, unprecedented, I would say, situation, because the, to, to add to the, to the incredible peculiarity of this, this is a plant which is controlled by the Russian forces, operated still by the Ukrainian utility Energoatom, uh, but uh, in a situation, as you can imagine, where, which, is, which is unsustainable uh, and where we cannot have uh, the, the, the appropriate access. So we hope to go there. So Warwick, there have been some notable elections over the past few weeks, which could have quite a big impact on the nuclear energy industry. Which ones have caught your eye? I suppose the main one is in South Korea, where there's been a total change of policy through the election, Yoon Suk-yong was sworn in as the new president in early May. He's vowed to reverse his predecessor Moon Jae-in's policy of phasing out nuclear energy. Um, this was a policy that was brought in when Moon um, assumed office in 2017. Although Yoon has yet to actually announce a new energy policy, he's expected to allow the country's existing 24 reactors to operate for a longer period. And he may also um, restart construction of two new reactors, Shin Hanul Units 3 and 4. The latest public opinion poll in South Korea actually shows about 72% support for nuclear. And Yoon's support is likely to spread to uh, the export of nuclear technology as well. We've recently had Korea Hydro Nuclear Power offering to construct six APR-1400 reactors in Poland possibly with Korea taking a, a stake in the project. 
And of course, here in Europe, President Macron was re-elected in France. Yeah. In February, prior to the election, Macron announced plans for construction of six EPRs in France and for studies on the construction of a further eight units. And the plan also included the development of small modular reactors. And there was also a presidential election in the Philippines as well. There was an election on the 9th of May and Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos, who is the son of the former dictator Ferdinand Marcos, um, he was voted in as the new president. He's due to take office at the end of June. The outgoing president, Rodrigo Duterte, issued an executive order in February making nuclear power part of the country's planned energy mix. Bongbong Marcos um, has said he will look into um, reviving the Batan plant. This was a plant built in response to the 1973 oil crisis. It was going to be a two-unit Westinghouse PWR plant. The first unit was completed in 1984, uh, but has never started up due to financial issues and safety concerns. So he's basically talking about restarting a nuclear power plant that his father was building four decades ago. It was. His father um, decided the country should have nuclear. They built the plant, but it would never start it up. So his son's now looking at reviving that project. How about uh, the elections in Australia? Has that had uh, much of an impact, do you think? Uh, that's right. Anthony Albanese of the, uh, the Labour Party won the election on the 21st of May. The outgoing Prime Minister was Scott Morrison, who was who led a Liberal National Coalition government. It's probably too early to say you know, what Albanese's election would bring. But he's already um, refused calls to phase out coal or to block the start-up of new coal mines. The, um, the Labour Party's very pro-renewables and has traditionally not been very pro-nuclear. Hi, Claire. You've been keeping an eye on the World Nuclear Fuel Cycle Conference. What did you pick up from that? Hi, Alex. Yes, that's right. Um, yes, it's been one of the big events over the last month or so, really, I suppose, from the industry point of view, the World Nuclear Fuel Cycle Conference, or WNFC as it's known, was held at the end of April. Now, this is a top-level international forum. It's co-organised by the Nuclear Energy Institute of the USA and World Nuclear Association, and it focuses on issues affecting the commercial nuclear fuel cycle, and particularly enhancing the economic competitiveness of nuclear energy. And leading industry experts from... Uh, the world-leading uranium producers and other players in the market come together and discuss uh, the important things that have been going on. Now, they said, by and large, the global uranium market hasn't yet really been very heavily impacted by the recent geopolitical events. And the messages that came through are that a calm, pragmatic approach is what's needed. But nevertheless, it is an exciting time for the fuel cycle. And I think some of this excitement was really borne out in the final session of the conference, which was dedicated to the various financial instruments and their implications on the fuel cycle and on the uranium market. Here's what the session's chair, Brandon Munro, who is the CEO of Bannerman Energy, which is developing the Tango project in Namibia, had to say. Good afternoon, everybody. Well, we've saved the best for last today. We're talking about something that's been infiltrating all of the speeches and all of the sessions for the whole day and that is of course financial investors and they've been described in various different ways today we've heard about their sharp elbows their animal instincts and they've even been accused of causing the poor price reporters to need to change their graph axes 
Now that session, as Brando says, was very much focused on developments over the past few years in particular, which have seen financial players, which you might say haven't traditionally been part of the uranium market, companies like Yellow Cake PLC, which was founded in 2018 by Bacchus Capital as a specialist company to operate in the uranium sector, holding physical uranium in the long term, and also Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, which began trading in Toronto last year. Um, all the panellists in that session were intimately connected with those companies. Um, here's Scott Melby, who is CEO of Uranium Royalty Corp. Uh, the topic today is really to talk about non-traditional uranium buyers, um, why, uh, you know, how they buy this uranium and why they buy this uranium. So why are these buyers buying uranium and what does that mean? Well, basically, it's a way for them to gain exposure to the uranium market, but it can also benefit the market in other ways. Uh, we've heard a lot over the past few years at, at conferences and so on about how these sort of purchases have sequestered uranium away from a market that's been in oversupply, and there are other possible impacts too. The catalyst is supply and demand. It was, um, you know, our recovery from the impacts of Fukushima on both uh, on demand and supply. It was the, the supply discipline on the production, but they helped rebalance it probably faster than it would have happened on its own, but it would have happened on its own. So rather than kind of blame them, I think they've kind of accelerated, but they're actually creating a healthier uranium market going forward that will ultimately moderate prices down the road because you're going to have a healthy new generation of uranium mines around the world that kind of keep things uh, in, in more of a balance down the road. So I, I realize it's kind of Hard to look at it when you see price moving, uh, um, but you know it's moving up and down uh, by big amounts. Went down ten dollars last week. So, uh, but we see it as a junior uranium producer is very positive because it is creating the conditions to move forward. So that's some really interesting and exciting stuff going on in the financial side of the market. And the WNFC also had um, sessions with policy um, sessions on government and utility views and um, looking at likely, likely pinch points. One of the take-home stories was that um, the industry seems pretty confident that um, it can bring the capacity online to avoid any shortages, um, but this could take time. So um, I'm sure some of these themes will be followed up again when the WNA holds its uh, next annual symposium in September in London, which for this year will actually be in person. Sounds like that's going to be a great event. Thanks, Claire and Warwick, and speak soon. I'm delighted to be joined now by John Gorman, President and CEO of Canadian Nuclear Association. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Alex. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm looking forward to talking about the state of the sector in Canada, how the industry fits in with carbon reduction targets and the state of play of small modular reactors. But before all that, can you just give us a brief overview of your background and about the Canadian Nuclear Association? Uh, thank you, Alex. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. So I've been in the uh, electricity uh, slash energy business or sphere for over 20 years now. And it was interesting, sort of the, the climate crisis and pressures entered my consciousness in the, in the late 1990s, just as we were starting a, a young family. And of course, I, uh, I was quite alarmed at how CO2 levels were rising in the world. And I decided to marry what I did in a, in, a, in a daily basis with, from a work perspective, with my personal ambition to help Canada and the world to decarbonize. And around that time, I had been appointed to an electricity uh, utility here in, in Canada, a, a larger one. 
And it was a very interesting time for electricity utilities in, in Canada. They were given all sorts of new powers, including the ability to get into renewables. And so uh, I thought, well, I'll concentrate on electricity. And uh, that started a, a fairly long career with uh, me being involved with renewables primarily as a developer of uh, renewable projects, as Canada's representative to the International Energy Agency for their Renewables Executive Committee, uh, my involvement with utilities, and then uh, a seven-year stint as the head of the Canadian Solar Industries Association. So I, I come to this from a renewables background, and it was after about a decade of work uh, with uh, folks here at, at home in Canada and with some global uh, leaders in, in solar that we, we accomplished quite a bit. But about three and a half years ago, when the IEA came out with the report that despite the billions of dollars of investment in renewables, despite the massive deployment of renewables globally, when I started, uh, Alex, in the solar business, we had 36% non-emitting electricity on the world's electricity grids. And today, more than 20 years later, we're still at 36%. Uh, we just haven't moved the, the dial. And, and it became clear to me that we needed something that was going to be able to complement renewables, to support renewables as a baseload source of power or as a flex flexible source of power in the case of small modular reactors that would enable us to decarbonize uh, the electricity grid here at home and, and elsewhere. And so that's when I, sh I turned my attention to the nuclear industry and the nuclear sector. And I've been the head of the Canadian Nuclear Association now for just over three years. That sounds like an interesting switch of jobs. How did you find the move from the renewable sector into nuclear? What sort of reaction did you get? Well, first of all, let me say I had to do a lot of homework. You know, despite coming from a province in Canada where we get about two-thirds of our electricity from nuclear power, and, and we have for almost 60 years, I knew relatively little about nuclear. But I, I did my homework. I discovered what a safe, reliable, um, incredible technology it is. The one thing I wasn't quite certain about was whether or not Canada was truly a poised to be a leader in, in the development and deployment of small modular reactors. I wondered if maybe the Canadian nuclear industry had been drinking its own bathwater, as we say, on, on that front. But on, on all the other elements of nuclear, I was satisfied. Uh, my former colleagues in the renewable space and in the environmental sectors, I think they reacted with some uh, dismay that I would uh, go over to the nuclear sector. But I'm really pleased to say that after three years of working very closely with my counterparts in the wind, water, solar, marine renewables sector, we have now formed a formal coalition in Canada called Electricity Alliance Canada. And we are working to influence both uh, policy and also the adoption of clean electricity in Canada because all of us recognize at this point that we're going to need everything at our disposal, including conventional nuclear and renewables and small modular reactors, hydrogen, et cetera, to be able to decarbonize our economies. And and so uh, there's been a shift uh, for the positive here in Canada with nuclear being recognized as, as being clean and needed for a low carbon future. So what is the situation in Canada at the moment in terms of decarbonization goals? And how big a role do you see for nuclear within it? I, I see uh, an indispensable and very large role for both conventional nuclear and, and small modular reactors. Canada has likely one of the most progressive climate plans in the world right now, at, at least detailed. Firstly, we are aiming for between 40 and, and 45% reduction in CO2 from our 2005 levels by 2030. So that's fairly aggressive. We also have a net zero target for 2050, which has been enshrined in government legislation. We have a carbon pricing regime here 
that is going up progressively uh, each year. It is now at about $60 per ton, and it's rising in $10 increments per year as we head towards 2050. And so it's having a noticeable impact now on policy and energy policy and, and energy planning uh, that we see across the country, both from utilities and heavy industries. We want a, a net zero electricity grid by 2035. What is clear, however, is that in the Canadian context, we are going to need either two or three times the amount of electricity generation we currently have. I'm leaning much more heavily towards three times because we are also looking at creating a lot of hydrogen here in in Canada, and that will use a lot of electrification. It's going to require uh, all of our existing uh, renewable technologies and uh, conventional nuclear as well as small modular reactors being built out uh, across the country. So there's a a big role for for nuclear. Nuclear currently provides about 15.15% of Canada's electricity. It's concentrated in two of our 10 provinces, about 60% of our electricity in Ontario coming from nuclear and about a third in in New Brunswick. When we look across the country at how we're going to be able to double or triple our, our electricity generation with different resources that are available to us, I think it's clear that, you know, there's not a lot of water power left to go after. Canada has been relatively blessed with a strong water resource. It supplies about two-thirds of our electricity nationally. We also have variable, um, varying, I should say, ability to tap into wind and solar, depending on which province in this very large country you're in. And so it looks like uh, the the dispatchability of nuclear, both conventional and small modular reactors, as a dependable resource that you can place almost anywhere and provide 24-7 clean electricity. And in the case of small modular reactors, clean heat is going to play a very important role in in terms of uh, helping Canada create the amount of clean electricity that is needed where it's needed. That all sounds encouraging, but it must have been disappointing that nuclear was excluded last year from Canada's Green Bond Framework. Uh, Can you explain a little bit about what the Green Bond Framework is and how significant you think the decision was? Yeah, I I will say it was disappointing that uh, Canada... The federal government came out with a green bond framework that specifically excluded. I think it was a lost opportunity from a leadership perspective. And, And I say that because despite the fact that there really isn't a nation, sovereign nation that has nuclear included in their green bond framework, and uh, it is clear that the world is moving toward uh, recognizing and including nuclear in green financing taxonomies. And of course, uh, you know this better than I do, Alex, but the European Union is on the forefront of uh, taxonomy that is including nuclear, and I'm sure that will carry over to some of the green bond frameworks that people have in, in place. So it was, it, was not, it was a lost opportunity here from a leadership point of view, because as we say in Canada, you know, the important thing is to be where the puck is going, an ice hockey reference rather than where the puck is right now. That being said, Bruce Power, which operates the world's largest nuclear plant, and that's here in the province of Ontario, recently issued a $500 million green bond that was six times oversubscribed. So they did this through the private uh, sector, and and there's clearly an appetite for green financing by the private uh, sector. And Bruce Power pulled off a world first by doing that. So we'll continue to work with the Canadian government here to try to get the inclusion of nuclear in their green bond framework and we'll be joining other world uh, or international associations and sectors and pushing for the same thing. On a brighter note the federal government federal budget this spring I think included funding for nuclear innovation in Canada and Canada of course is one of the countries at the forefront of the development of small modular reactors. 
How optimistic are you about the future? I'm more optimistic now uh, than I've ever been, Alex. And I think that the the liberal government that we have here, uh, federal government that we have here nationally, is a great example of this sort of progression of understanding and, and views around nuclear. You know, three years ago, uh, we were hard pressed to find a, a single cabinet minister in this government that would say the word nuclear behind a, a, a microphone. <laughs> and, you know, since that time, and there's th- these pressures that we have with the climate crisis and, and now the very intent effort that's underway to look at solutions seriously that has caused a revisitation of of nuclear and the real facts behind nuclear and you know showed a progression in in terms of sort of incremental support for nuclear in various ways we started to see funding and financing being made through the federal government for specific technologies small modular reactor technologies in canada we saw the provincial governments, select provincial governments putting on a, a hard drive to have the development and deployment of small modular reactors so that they could hit their targets we saw industry being very proactive. But what was the breakthrough, I would say, is, uh, or at least a real step change here, was this latest budget you referred to. The federal government has come out and declared uh, nuclear not only as clean and needed for a, a net zero future, and that it would continue to invest in small modular reactor technologies, but it has now uh, dedicated a section to nuclear in, in, in the budget, and it has begun investments in the entire nuclear ecosystem. That includes our regulator, the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, has been given considerable funding to fast track the development of licensing and technical capacity to be able to deal with uh, the multiple technologies that are going through the system. They've opened up the Canada Infrastructure Bank to specifically be funding the development and deployment of small modular reactors. They've greatly broadened the definition of what our current financing programs and uh, could be used for in terms of pre-development work for, for nuclear. So it's an exciting time here to have been given a, a seat at the table. So Canada has long been at the forefront of the global nuclear energy industry. And with the progress on SMRs, do you see much of an export opportunity there? We do see a very promising export opportunity. I'd like to take a step back, Alex, and say, um, you know, we started with the story of me wondering whether Canada was poised to be a leader in small modular reactor technology. I wasn't certain about that. I can tell you now that we certainly, in the free world anyway, are a leader in the development and will be in the deployment of small modular reactors. Many people have heard that uh, Ontario Power Generation has uh, selected GE Hitachi as uh, the first small modular reactor that it will deploy. The target date is 2028. It's a 300 megawatt reactor that will be live on the existing Darlington nuclear site. There's room there for four or five of those uh, same units. Ken Hardwick, the CEO of uh, Ontario Power Generation, just announced a collaboration with uh, Jeff Lyash of Tennessee Valley Authority in the United States. TVA will also be pursuing the same technology, and so there are certain synergies uh, and efficiencies that are going to be found there with, I think, multiple units going into the U.S. as well. We have several other technologies that are very close to uh, being, or at least they're in the late stages of the review and licensing process here in front of the CNSC, and some of those smaller ones will be deployed before 2028. We're looking at a couple of technologies that will be deployed at uh, nuclear laboratories and, and research centers in the provinces of Ontario and Saskatchewan before 2028, as well as several other technologies that are being explored right now very seriously by heavy industry in Canada, including the oil and gas sector, the mining sector, and cement and steel 
manufacturing. So huge amount of potential here. And certainly we have an eye on how we're going to be able to bring these technologies to other markets and help them reach their decarbonization objectives. Uh, You mentioned that one of the opportunities for SMRs in Canada is to help decarbonize the oil and gas industries. I just wondered, how does that work? Well, it's the ability of some of these small modular reactor technologies to, especially what we we refer to as the fourth generation, Gen 4 technologies, to produce very high temperature heat. So the 90% of the oil that is produced in the oil sands in, in Western Canada is produced through a process that involves heating up steam to a very high temperature and then injecting it into the ground and sort of liquefying the bitumen and, and then extracting it. Currently, that entire process is done with natural gas. And the advent of small modular reactors means being able to create that high temperature steam without any carbon associated with it. So not only is the the oil and gas sector in Canada, you know, the largest source of emissions in in the country, but it's also a very important uh, economic sector for us. And Canada sees uh, it within its best interest as we go towards this increasingly carbon-constrained world to be producing the lowest carbon barrel of oil that we possibly can as we transition away from fossil fuels. And so we're, we're viewing this as a competitive advantage for Canada. Obviously, everyone's been shocked by what's been going on in Ukraine, and it's had a lot of knock-on effects on the economies around the world. What sort of impact has it had in Canada for the nuclear industry? Well, it's, it's had impact on a number of different levels. Canada, Alex, as you know, is the, the world's second largest exporter of uranium. The companies like uh, Cameco here, which have some of the best uranium deposits in the world and do an amazing job of producing and exporting that product. They have been working with a, a group of other uranium suppliers around the world to figure out how it is we're going to be able to completely bypass any need for uranium and enriched uranium from Russia. So that's one thing. I think it's also had a contradictory type of impact on the oil sands. So we were just talking about the use of small modular reactors in the oil sands to produce lower carbon oil. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, discussion, you know, we've got very aggressive targets for needing to reduce emissions in, in the oil sands sector. At the same time, we see that Ukraine and other nations in the European Union really have a quite a pronounced need for more oil and gas right now. And so Canada is trying to step up to help meet the extra production requirements on behalf of the EU. You mentioned on SMRs, we're looking at around 2028, so it's not a pipe dream. This is a real thing that we're pretty close to now. How do you see the nuclear industry looking by 2060? I think I'm hopeful that uh, we'll be able to meet this net zero 2050 future that we'll be able to keep global warming below catastrophic uh, levels. But I, I would also say, Alex, that if we're looking at the 2050 timeline anyway, I'm beginning to feel that technology, the technology selection is no longer the barrier or the bottleneck to reaching a net zero future. It's clear from Canadian perspective anyway that we're going to use wind, solar, water, conventional nuclear, which we already have at our disposal, that we're going to shortly be deploying small modular reactors. Uh, We'll be creating hydrogen, you know, significant effort around a hydrogen uh, economy. We've already made very significant investments in carbon capture and sequestration. And we're, you know, working as others are on long-term battery storage technologies that will help with that whole bundle of of clean electricity sources. So I think the support in Canada anyway for the use of the existing technologies and these developing ones is is pretty clear. 
What keeps me up at night, to be honest, is the softer issues around this. What are we going to do about uh, community acceptance for major infrastructure builds around energy and, and clean electricity? No one seems to want to build anything anywhere. What are we going to do about uh, supply chains and ensuring that we can meet that sort of demand? What are we going to do about human talent to be able to pull this energy transformation off, not only in the Canadian context, but globally? It's these issues that we really have to turn our attention to now to ensure that they don't become the bottlenecks. I think the technology pathways are becoming the lesser of our concerns. Uh, Before we wrap up, I know there are other positive uses of nuclear technology in Canada beyond just energy. I'm thinking in particular about medical isotopes. There are some incredible innovations that are going on in nuclear medicine here in Canada. Alex, Canada has been a world leader for a number of decades now in the, in the production of medical isotopes. That's been in large part thanks to our, our national laboratories and, and research centres, which have used laboratory settings and, and very small lab reactors to create those isotopes. That work continues, but we are now seeing some real innovation in harvesting different types of new isotopes from our existing conventional reactors. So already underway at the uh, OPG Darlington nuclear stations and now at the Bruce Power nuclear uh, station, we're seeing different types of isotopes being produced uh, from the conventional operating reactors. And this is greatly increasing Canada's ability to supply these life-saving medical isotopes to global markets as well as here at home. So I'm watching this area uh, very closely and it's giving me a a very good sense that nuclear will continue to be perceived as something that's helpful in areas outside of just electricity. That's a nice upbeat note to end on. It seems there are interesting times ahead in Canada. Many thanks for joining us, John. I'm really pleased to be joined now by Francois Morin, China Director for World Nuclear Association, for a focus on the industry in China. Hi, Francois. Welcome. Thank you for your invitation. Pleased to be here. Shall we start at the very beginning? Yes. uh, China developed its nuclear industry uh, much earlier than one would think. Uh, In fact, it started in the 1950s with uh, collaboration with Russia, and this is meaningful uh, till today. Uh, They started uh, this collaboration in 1956, and when they simultaneously built uh, three projects and one experimental reactor. Three projects was uh, enrichment factory, reprocessing factory, and conversion plant plant factory in uh, in Inner Mongolia, in Gansu, in several places in China. Um, Last year, we've seen um, online inauguration by the two leaders, Mr. Xi Jinping and Mr. Putin, for uh, the ceremony for the two new plants. We saw the FCD kind of ceremony in Sudapu in the north and Tianwan in the south. So you see how this collaboration is staying alive along Chinese history since uh, 70 years, in fact. It is true that the program started with Russia was first to initiate a nuclear weapons program. It was not directly linked to the nuclear civil power program. This one started much later in 1974. At that time, China decided to have its own nuclear program, civil power program. They started the construction of their first China-made, entirely China-made plant in 1985. 
And uh, this was connected to the grid uh, at the same time as the Diabe French technology uh, plant in uh, 1994. It was at that time a smaller um, kind of uh, reactor, 330 megawatt only, and uh, fully uh, Chinese-owned technology. This technology served as a reference for uh, the Pakistan plants, which started, by the way, nearly at the same time, in the mid-90s. So this is how it started. Uh, then, of course, uh, China decided to uh, implement uh, foreign technologies, uh, as the French one uh, in Diabe, close to Hong Kong. Hong Kong was an investor from the beginning in this Diabe uh, reactor, and these uh, pressurized water reactors were quite successful in the southern China, in Guangdong province. It helped to build the first company dedicated to nuclear power, CGN Company which was a kind of an emanation from the Ministry of Energy at that time. And there were built uh, seven reactors between 1994 uh, and uh, 2000. And then there was a gap with no constructions until uh, 2006. And from that time, from 2006, we've seen uh, a surge in the, in, the, in the constructions up to 10 reactors in one single year, in 2010. Of course, in 2011, China faced Fukushima as any other nuclear country, and they had to implement a new safety plan, which was required by the National Energy Administration and validated in 2012, which enabled again uh, new constructions in 2012. And now we have had, in the last years, different technologies and the different numbers of new constructions, two constructions, three new constructions, four constructions. And we are slowly going up to the recommended quantities of new reactors a year, which was uh, suggested in 2019 and confirmed uh, in the last two years that China's goal is now to have uh, six to eight reactors a year of new constructions. So this is quite an impressive program. In 2010, they, they built 10 reactors. These reactors were of uh, various uh, origin, I would say. Some were still on the, of the French technologies, and uh, there was also the new Russian uh, type uh, VVR. Uh, there were also before that the Kendu reactors. And after 2010, yes, they started building the, C the EAP-1000 from Westinghouse. So you see, you have a, a large diversity of technologies and uh, approaches in China. And I would say that diversity is the key word to understand the Chinese nuclear industry. So how big is the nuclear energy industry in China at the moment? At the moment, you have uh, 53 reactors operating plus uh, 20 units in construction, which represents so 54 gigawatt operational plus 22 gigawatt uh, being built. 
that should bring China to 70 gigawatt operational in 2025. But this does not reflect the whole capacity of Chinese nuclear industry. The impressive part of Chinese program is not to have today 50 and on something gigawatt, but is to, is to plan having 200 gigawatt by 2040. Is there a specific target for nuclear share of electricity in the future? Electricity, uh, today the share the, uh, of nuclear in the mix is still uh, quite uh, modest, small. It, it represents now exactly 5%. There has been some target uh, in the past of uh, nuclear share in, the, in 2035, 12%. People were talking about 12%, 15%. It's difficult to figure out exactly the share in the mix because the electricity demand will change also dramatically, drastically in China. In some provinces in China, you have already some of them, one, two, three provinces have nuclear share in the mix, which is already beyond 20%. But when you spread that all over China, of course, you have a, a, an overall result, which is only 5%. It looks like the UK has moved politically back from plans for Chinese involvement in future reactors. But there's been more positive recent news from Argentina. Are exports a big goal for the industry in China? China has ambition, of course, in exporting its uh, nuclear industry. They were um, saying some years ago that exporting one reactor is equivalent to export one million cars in terms of workforce required, in, in terms of money, in terms of investment, in any regards. One reactor would equal one million cars. The majority of agreements, if not all of them, were signed before 2015. Pakistan is a long-term partner of China. They have now all the plants in, in Pakistan are all uh, China-made. And of course, China will go on building uh, reactors in Pakistan, probably. But apart from Pakistan, today Argentina has signed and they have plans with uh, Turkey, with South Africa, with Saudi Arabia, particularly with uh, small modular reactors and high temperature reactors, maybe in Saudi Arabia. So they have a lot of prospects, but not yet results. In fact, there are, there are some obstacles to Chinese export. One of them is the um, uh, geopolitical that China has not uh, the influence that, that, that for instance, uh, Russia has in several countries like Bangladesh or Egypt. But it's not the only obstacle. There is another one, which is how to uh, export fuel and how to bring back used fuel for reprocessing. They have also some economic difficulties in providing uh, loans on the terms comparative to what Rosatom is doing. But what the Russians have been doing, at least till today, till sanctions time, is a model for China expansion in the world. You mentioned foreign involvement in the development of the industry back in the 1980s and 90s. Is there still a market for foreign firms looking to do business in China? Yes, um, foreign companies have put a great hope on the, on the foreign import technologies. I mean, uh, PWR in, uh, with the French technology or AP1000 or even VVR and the Kendu and others. So they have, uh, everybody thought that uh, it would be a, a, a door open to the supply, uh, foreign supply 
chain. In fact, China has um, now put in place a kind of mandatory authorization uh, certification which restricts very much the possibility of uh, exporting to China technologies. On Today, only uh, 230 maybe uh, companies have this uh, certificate and it requires nearly two years of documentation and several uh, elements to, to, to bring to the Chinese administration. One of them is the proof of demand which you can get from a Chinese customer. And this is a difficult task, in fact. So you cannot be certified without having first a confirmed customer. It's why we see less and less uh, companies uh, interested somehow in the Chinese market because it's becoming more and more difficult to get in, which makes sense because if the Chinese uh, part, when they started Diabe, for instance, was uh, nearly 0%, including concrete, everything was brought from abroad. Now it's not the case. Now the average uh, Chinese uh, part of uh, current nuclear reactors is uh, close to 90%. The Western companies can still have some shares in uh, nuclear activity, not in uranium, not in mining. That's prohibited. But yes, foreign companies can have some shares in, uh, in the energy field, but with a lot of restrictions. I've been reading about the district heating initiatives in China. Uh, are they important for the image of nuclear in the country? Yes. This, I think this heating, district heating, it, it contributes to give a positive image, but I, I don't think it's uh, that important. People have a good idea, image of um, nuclear, mainly because of the lack of visible pollution. It is compared, in a Chinese mind, it's compared to uh, coal plants. So when you visit a, a, a nuclear plant in China, what you, your first impression is cleanliness. It's very clean. Also, you have in China governmental entities like the China Nuclear Society or China Nuclear Energy Association that are working a lot to spread the good, the right information about nuclear. You know, they have their organized visits, they have small uh, scientific uh, kind of uh, museums and events, and they invite, they go to the schools, uh, they explain. They believe that by explaining, by teaching what is nuclear, they can gain uh, people's uh, hearts and minds. I am not sure this approach is the right one because I am not sure that the fear of nuclear is uh, due to the lack of information, but is the way that Chinese government is treating the, the question today. But uh, they believe that the right answer is to provide uh, as much information as, as possible. Well, providing as much information as possible always sounds like a good way to go. So before we wrap up, as a close watcher of the industry in China, what do you think are the most exciting developments to watch out for over the next few years? You know, what is, uh, what is exciting is the national plan of development. What is exciting is the diversity of technologies and the new technologies. China is the first implementing today a small modular reactor. 
which is under construction on the Hainan Island. You have the floating plant in Russia, but the first inland um, small modular reactor is in China today, and it should be operational within two years now, two years and a half. So it will be the first connected to the grid in the world. They, ha they are the first having this high temperature reactor, which might be suitable for producing hydrogen. They are the first having a district heating solution linked to today to standard uh, pressurized water reactor, but they are also developing many different types of uh, heating reactor, pool reactors for the northern China. China has evaluated already that there are 700 million inhabitants requiring heating in the northern China. And these are consuming a huge quantity of CO2. So if you replace only one part of that by nuclear heating, this will be um, the main uh, battle against the CO2. And they are working on new technologies as well as uh, in, um, in a fusion reactor. You know, or in uh, molten salt reactors, they are also not late compared to uh, other countries. So we can see in the coming future new reactors, uh, new ideas, uh, new development. I think they are very busy inside China. And even if they have the ambition to build outside China, I think they, of course, it would be good for them, but it's uh, for their image. But I think they have a lot before to do within China. Francois, fascinating stuff. Many thanks for joining us and let's speak again soon. Well, that's about all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more details on the subjects covered in the show notes. If you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss out on our next edition of World Nuclear News. Mm-hmm.